I don't know, I sent out an email this week asking everybody to read the first two chapters. So if you did that, I'm sure you were deeply moved and blessed by the first two chapters of Judges. Probably not. <laughs> it is long going, kind of trudging through it. Uh, my dad said to me before this, I'm really interested to see how you turn this into a sermon. So <laughs> it was a little bit of a challenge, but we'll get started on it. So uh, honestly, what I want to do this morning is a couple of tasks. I want to set in place a good sort of setting and background for the book of Judges as a whole, because it's really important in reading this book to sort of understand where it fits in the Old Testament, what's going on in the background. So we'll spend a little bit of time this morning doing that, which actually these first two chapters do. They set sort of the setting. You notice there aren't really too many judges in this part, not the ones we think of at least. So those will come in the following chapters. So we'll spend some time on setting. And then the other thing I want to do is just pull out a couple of the major themes. So we, in these first two chapters, get introduced to some of the themes that are coming in Judges. So it's a good place to sort of introduce us to them so that as we continue, we sort of pick up uh, deeper meanings as we go on. So a good place to start uh, in the book of Judges is sort of reflecting back on the transition before from the book of Joshua, which if you remember, it seems like a long time ago, we finished the book of Joshua in December. So it's been a pretty significant gap of time. But we come to this next book, the book of Judges. Uh, maybe a way of starting to think about this transition is this weekend I had the privilege of introducing Ashley to Star Wars, which, believe it or not, she had literally never seen in her entire life, which I found only more shocking the fact Roger had never seen it, even though he lived through the 70s and the mayhem of it. But we watched, uh, this weekend we watched the first Star Wars, A New Hope, which was like everything that my childhood was, collecting Star Wars figures and watching the movie. And if you remember that movie, the very first one, How the Movie Ends, uh, Luke Skywalker, the hero, right? He uses the force to fire the two proton torpedoes into the Death Star, and the thing blows up to save the rebellion, right? I know this is going somewhere, I promise. <laughs> and so at the end of the last scene of this movie, if you remember, there's this big celebration ceremony, and Han Solo and Luke Skywalker are walking up, and they receive medals. You can sort of hear the music building. Everyone's saved, right? Everyone's happy. But in the background of this sort of big celebratory last scene of the movie, there's this tension, if you remember, that Darth Vader, the bad guy was not on the Death Star, and he actually survives the whole ending of the movie. So in the middle of all of this celebration, it actually seems pretty obvious from the first movie that the story isn't over. It hasn't concluded. There's going to be a sequel, right? As we all know, there's been plenty of them. Uh, what it does is it shows what all good sequels sort of end up doing. The first movie ends with some sense of an unfinished story, something that's sort of left hanging and unanswered. And the sequel, a good sequel, always opens up right in the middle of the tension of that movie. So maybe another one if you think that's too nerdy to quote Star Wars. Uh, this is probably still nerdy, but if you saw the Lord of the Rings trilogies, right? So the first Lord of the Rings, because it does it so perfectly for Joshua and the Judges. If you remember the first Lord of the Rings, it ends with this, right? There's this massive battle that takes place in the woods. And during the battle, Sam and Frodo break off and end up going on their own journey to try to destroy the ring, just these two hobbits. And as the story ends, the last scene of the first movie, Sam and Frodo, these two hobbits, stand on this horizon, looking out over all of the mountains that lay between them and this goal, this place that they're trying to take the ring. And so you sort of hear the music begin to kind of build. You know, the scene, the movie's about to come to an end. It's sort of this uplifting moment. And Sam turns to, uh, uh, or Frodo turns to Sam, his friend, and he says, Sam, I'm glad that you're with me. And so at about the same time, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, the penny whistle solo starts, right? And so all of a sudden it starts feeling nostalgia and like home. And so this last scene is sort of them reflecting on their friendship and the shire and courage 
friendship, nostalgia. You sort of get the feel for it, right? And the two, the last bit of the movie, they walk off and the sun's sort of setting and it's the end of the first movie. The next movie opens up with a really similar scene. The exact same two characters are now walking and climbing up the exact same mountain cliffs they were just looking at at the end of the movie. But this movie begins with this opening line. Sam turns to Frodo, and this time he says, let's face it, Mr. Frodo, we're lost. Sort of catch what a good sequel does. There's hope and uplifting at the end of the first movie, but something left unfinished. And the sequel opens by immediately taking all of the unfinished business and forcing it into the setting of this new reality, this new story, this new movie. That's actually a really good way of thinking about what happens from Joshua ending into this next book, the book of Judges. So if you remember all the way back to Joshua, the Joshua, uh, last chapter of Joshua ends with a celebration. There's victory. The land has been conquered. Joshua calls all of the people together for a covenant renewal. And if you think back, as he does, reflecting on all of Israel's history, it's pretty impressive. Israel had broken out of slavery in Egypt. They had struggled through the wilderness for an entire generation. They finally made it to the promised land and launched a full-scale invasion. They had watched battles lead to victory, miraculous interventions, hand over their enemies into their hands. Each tribe, as Joshua closes, has given their own land to settle in, to enjoy. Everything seems at the end of Joshua to be wrapping up really nicely. Joshua is told to be old in age, calling all of the nations together, all of these tribes. He holds a celebration. They worship. They renew their covenant before God together. Faith. God, you can sort of hear the music building at the end of this movie, this final scene, right? The, fan, the fanfare piece, think like the big Star Wars soundtrack. Everything's building here to this big moment, ceremony, full of God, full of worship, full of bravery, full of stories of victory. Near the end of Joshua in the last chapter, it says this, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all of the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all of the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. It's a really interesting verse to sort of end on, because it begs a big question. Everything seems to be going well at the end of Joshua, serving God, but we sort of pick up this hint that something else is about to happen. All the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, they served God. Well, it sort of begs the question, well, what happened after those elders? It leaves a question hanging. Who will this next leader be? I mean, after all, Moses had handed on authority to Joshua, but Joshua doesn't seem to hand over authority to anyone. It leaves questions hanging that set us up for this next sequel. The last few sentences of the book describe Joshua's peaceful death, his burial in the land, this land that they had anticipated for so long. You can sort of imagine here, like any great movie scene, the sun setting, the camera slowly pulling back. But I sort of imagine that as it does at the end of Joshua, we see off in the distance a small Canaanite city, its people pulling closed doors to their homes as they settle in for the night. Everything seems to have ended well, but there's still a few Canaanites living in this land, still a few pieces that need to be settled, still a little bit of unfinished business, and it sort of prepares us for this next book, Judges, with so much having been achieved, but yet this story not completely complete. Joshua ends with the epic accomplishments, but it hangs us with two unanswered questions. Who will replace Joshua? And the conquest still needs to be finished. Israel had devastated the Canaanites, but Joshua is clear that Israel's command now at the end of Joshua is to take possession of it, to drive out the rest of the people, to finish what they had started, and to begin to enjoy and worship God solely in the midst of this new land that they had anticipated. 
Maybe it's to say this. Joshua wrapped up without a leader and without the land fully conquered. And so it lets us know that a sequel's coming. The story isn't over, but there's more going to happen. That's sort of a good ending to the book of Judges that prepares us for reading these first two difficult chapters of Judges, Judges 1 and 2. Judges opens right away exactly where Joshua ends, right? So with that setting in place, it makes a whole lot of sense when we turn the page and we come to verse 1 of Joshua chapter 1. Verse 1 says this, Now after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. What comes next, if you read through the first two chapters, is sort of a list of all the things that Judah did in this transition, this new setting to the book of Judges. If you read the passage, you probably get lost or bogged down pretty quickly in it, because it seems to be lists of which town was conquered after which town was conquered, as uh, Judah prepares to sort of carry on this work of Joshua conquering the rest of the land. It appears that the story, at first glance, is sort of picking up with all the force and confidence that Joshua ended with, right? Victories and battles. Judah seems to be this new leader who God is appointing. He's going to take the place of Joshua and continue to finish what was started. It all leads us up to verse 19, which, to be honest, is massively subtle. But every commentator and everyone points out the importance of this verse, chapter 1, verse 19. Verse 19 says this, Judah again is on this conquest, conquering more cities, and we read in verse 19, and the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. Okay, that's not a whole lot, just a verse, in case you think I'm making uh, maybe too much of too little. One of the commentators says this that puts it well. They say, this is the first disquieting admission that everything did not go according to plan. We are left to wonder why chariots should have proven so decisive if Yahweh was indeed with Judah. It is not a circumstance we would have anticipated. I mean, you have to admit, Joshua was full of whole towns being leveled by blowing trumpets, but apparently a set of chariots on the plains keeps Judah from being able to take the land that God was leading him into. Uh, It may not be the full story, but at least hints us to the fact that things are not quite as we had expected them to be coming out of this epic ending of Joshua. There's challenge and frustration here right off the bat in the first chapter. What the book of Judges does right away is it abruptly halts all of this massive, epic storyline of Israel and Joshua. This new movie, this new story, the sequel of Judges, it throws us right into the middle of new particulars. New names that we haven't heard before, new places we haven't seen, challengers, barriers that we hadn't expected to be coming. And we instantly realize something, maybe not the first time you read the two chapters, but hopefully at the end of this sermon, the thing that you realize from this introduction of Judges is this. Something something is going on here that we hadn't expected from the storyline before. This new chapter of Israel's history is beginning, and this new setting of stalled-out ambition starts quickly piling up. If you catch verse 19 and keep reading, you start seeing the trend change. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31, Asherah did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 34, the Amorites, these are the Canaanites, pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. Well, if you had expected everything coming out of Joshua would have gone smoothly, epic, To finish this story, by the end of chapter 1, everything seems to be unraveling pretty quickly. 
They aren't able to stop a few chariots, even though before they had brought down whole cities. No one seems to be pushing out the people God had told them to. In fact, the Canaanites are actually pushing the people back into the hills, away from the towns that God had given them. Any grand idea or thoughts that we had at the end of Joshua are pretty quickly overwhelmed by this new setting, this new reality. Okay, now if you were to go through and read the entire book of Judges, this new setting, these first two chapters, actually makes a lot of sense out of what's going to happen throughout the rest of the book of Joshua, or Judges, what we'll look at. The book of Judges ends up being a set of stories. So if you've read it before, there's some we're probably more familiar with, like Samson. But the book itself is based on a whole set of these stories told around different characters, judges. In the book of Judges, there's actually 12 of these judges, one that represents each of the 12 tribes. They reinforce broadly what's happening for all of Israel through each of these individual judges that end up sharing similar stories. So if we read through all of them, which what we'll probably end up doing is pulling out some of the major judges, but all of the judges, all 12 of them, follow the same little narrative structure. This is how this little story cycle goes all 12 times throughout the book of Judges. So for each judge, this is the storyline. God calls the people to take possession of the land and be faithful, which we see right off the bat isn't going very well for them. The people get caught up in all of the Canaanite culture, and they turn away from God. And in the end, where it leads is they become oppressed and beaten down and beaten back by the Canaanites. So in response, God calls a judge, a person, to deliver them. God uses that judge to restore the peace of these people, the promise that he had given them. This little circle, the storyline, being beaten back, God raising up a judge, that judge delivering the people, plays itself out 12 times across each of the 12 tribes in the book of Judges. One for each tribe. Each judge, as we move forward, actually ends up getting a little bit different. Some, all this story takes place in a few sentences, a few verses. Others of the judges, like Samson, take place, or Gideon take place over several chapters of the book. But all of them are actually moving to a bigger conclusion. So you can see right here, if you want to see sort of how this plays out, chapter 2, which you read right in the first two chapters, verse 15, I'm sure you caught this section. Uh, Verse 15 says this. It's sort of God gives us the clue of how this process is going to play out in the book. He says, whenever they marched out, this is the Israelites, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned. And the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And then the ESV titles this next section, the Lord raises up judges. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they, this is Israel, did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all of the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So, there in a nutshell, chapter 2, this introduction, is a little bit of what lies ahead for us. It sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? Uh, All of these judges sort of repeat this same cycle, being raised up, delivering the people, and the people falling back into the same idolatry. Uh, If you put all of these stories together, there's actually a bigger story that ends up playing out across judges. And it's pretty obvious if you read through it. Each of these judges, the 12 of them, as their stories come up, get progressively worse. So the first one we'll look at next week actually does a pretty good job of delivering the people and seems to be pretty honest and upright. 
But as the stories go on, the characters get more and more difficult to read. By the time we get to Samson towards the end, if you know Samson's story, it's hard to really know if he's a good guy or a bad guy at all, even though he seems to be called one of these judges to deliver Israel's people. We struggle to sort of understand what are we supposed to do with these judges that though God is using them and anointing them, seem to be just as complicated, just as confused, just as sinful as the nation around them. This one common thread is actually the fact that everything throughout this period of Judges continues to decline and get worse. All of these cycles of Judges is actually moving us further and further away in Israel's history to their focus and their loyalty to God. At the core of all of this downward cycle is one of the book's most important themes. It's one of the ones I wanted to call out this week that we'll pay attention to as we work through the book. The thing that you'll see over and over and over in the book of Judges is this. Israel continues to have an infatuation with everything Canaanite. Canaanite religion, Canaanite sexuality, Canaanite productivity, their crops and agriculture, Canaanite technology, these new glaring iron chariots, pretty much anything that is Canaanite at one point in the book of Judges will capture the Israelites' attention and pull them into idolatrous worship. Now, at this point, it's probably important to have a pretty good picture of what this world looks like of this Canaanite civilization set alongside all of these Israelites. Uh, I'm going to try my best to keep this as little Sunday school as possible, but this is really important to sort of catch a picture of what's going on for all of these judges and how they're working. If you sort of have in your mind, imagining this world of judges in Joshua, with all of our Christian background of reading about Israel and thinking about Israel and knowing what lies ahead for them, it's easy to get a pretty heightened view of who Israel was. Uh, maybe you sort of have in your mind right now the background for this book is this civilized, religious Israelite people, an advanced nation. And they're pushing out a bunch of backwood pagan Canaanites to take the land that God had given them. If you think about it that way, you're going to pretty quickly miss the point of the story because it's not the way that the actual world was working in that time. The setting is wrong. We know several things about this world of the Canaanites and the Israelites. And the first thing is this. All of the archaeology points out the fact that the Canaanite cities, these cities we read about here in Joshua, were far more advanced than anything that the Israelites brought to the table or we give credit for. The Canaanites lived, you sort of see it in this book and in the one before, they live in this sort of city-state type government where all of the regions were controlled by massive urban cities, and most of them were pretty advanced in their culture. We know from the reports of the spies, do you remember the story back in Numbers where the spies are sent in? Uh, Joshua is one of them with Caleb to scout out the land, this promised land. We know from their report that these cities were massive, that they were well fortified, that they would have been strongholds for the military. These weren't sort of simple rural people, but rather urban, advanced cultured people. We also know that they obviously were doing some things right with produce and crops and agriculture. Because if you remember, every time we talk about the promised land, it gets described as a land flowing with milk and honey, right? Archaeologists have found that there's all sorts of unique cultural art forms taking place in Canaan. So specific types of pottery, specific types of art. These weren't sort of backwoods people, but rather they were building culture and establishing culture. They found artifacts in all of the Canaanite cities from around the world, which hints at the fact that these are people participating in commerce, with trade, sort of an international relationship. Even the fact we read here in these first two chapters, these iron chariots, is a pretty big indication that there's advanced technology taking place in this area. At least the fact is that Israel sure didn't have anything to match it, and Israel was pretty convinced they weren't going to be able to beat it. So it starts to give us a better picture of what one of these Canaanite cities, these Israelites up in the hill country looking down on them in the plains would have seen. These were urban, cultured, 
highly educated, highly technologically advanced, with great crops, great infrastructure, people. Now, the big point is don't lose perspective here. The Israelites are just two generations removed, probably, from the slavery at the end of Joshua that they had experienced in Egypt. So we're not talking about a big distance of time. Most of these people have slavery roots as a part of their family tradition. Their parents spent their entire lives wandering the wilderness. And now this generation, beginning the book of Judges, is a generation that is only known scraping out a living in the hills above these advanced urban cities, looking down on all of the Canaanites, wondering what it would be like to live there, to have what they had, to be a part of that world. You sort of get a better picture of the setting, don't you? Uh, It's also pretty important at this point to recognize that it's not a big surprise that the Israelites would be pulled into Canaanite worship. Uh, We sort of hear these stories and we think, after everything that God has done for you, after everything that you have seen, how in the world could you turn away from this God and go down and start worshiping a carved out idol of Baal? Like it seems absolutely absurd to us, but we're probably not being fair to the Israelites. As they live in these sort of carved out huts, homes, they're scraping together, trying to conquer this new land in the hills. As they look down on all of the advancement that's taking place in these Canaanite cities, if they were to wander into a Canaanite and ask the simple question, how in the world have you managed to do all this? to build all this, to make all of this culture and this civilization happen, every Canaanite would have given the exact same answer. It's because the gods, our gods, are blessing us. Everything that we have is because the gods are giving it to us. And the Canaanites had developed a pretty extensive pantheon of gods. So probably the ones you're most familiar with are Baal or Asherah. We'll read about them several times here. Baal's the chief god and probably the most important because he played a specific role. He was the god that most got most of the attention because he was the fertility god. He ensured that crops would grow, that the harvests would be plentiful, and it seems like apparently the worship of him in the Canaanites' mind was doing a pretty good job. Do you remember, have you ever seen the uh, carved statues of the spies returning from the promised land? The one that most people have seen, they have like a pole and they have a cluster of grapes that's like the size of a Volkswagen Beetle they're carrying between the two of them, right? This is sort of the image going on that people, the Israelites, had for this promised land. These people had everything they could possibly need, these Canaanites, in abundance. So it's not hard if you're sitting here as an Israelite trying to scrape out a living, looking at all that's going on in the Canaanite cities to say, something about that Baal worship that they put so much hope and trust in must be working. It almost seems pragmatic. If they're getting those kind of results from that kind of worship, then there must be something to it. There must be something there. You can sort of pick up how enticing it would have been to have started participating. Uh, If I can take it one step further in how enticing, because it gets a little bit more enticing in the book, which we'll come across, if all of this promise of better harvests and feasts and advanced cities and technology, if that wasn't enough to entice Israelite men into Baal worship, there was a particular way that Baal was actually worshipped in the ancient world. All over the Canaanite cities were Baal temples with sacred prostitutes. I'm going to keep this really clean. I'll read a, a, a historical note from a history book. But one historian says this, A follower of Baal could go into a priestess and by means of love with Baal's representative and a human fertility rite, persuade Baal to grant fertility to the worshippers' fields. Kind of get a picture of how worship worked in these Canaanite cities. It's probably sufficient to say, without going too far into it, you can see that it didn't take much missionary or evangelization on the Canaanites' part to tempt more than a few of the Israelite men to start worshiping. The more I worship this Baal, the better my crops become, seemed to be a pretty easy line of reasoning to hook a lot of the Israelites into participating in Baal worship. 
And the story plays itself out, as you're going to see in Samson and all over the place in this book of Judges. So, does that sort of give you a better setting for this world of Judges as we move forward? Uh, As we read the book, you're going to see this pull towards Canaanite culture on almost every page of the entire book. If I had to summarize the book of Judges in just a couple sentences, which is a pretty hard task, I think it would be this exact point. Judges shatters all of our illusions of what living in the promised land was going to be like. Enticement and temptation, allure, constantly in sight, just down on the plains and these cities below us. Yet in the mess of this whole thing, all of the complexities of living in this place, these cultures, God keeps his people. It's really the point of the book. It's hard to see, it's slow to see, it's complicated to see, because Judges is full of so much honesty about what this world around the Israelites looks like. But there it is. Even as these tribes and these stories spiral us downward into more and more chaos, God never stops working. He never stops raising up a judge to save them. He never abandons his people or leaves them. By the end of the book, although things seem to be in utter chaos, we can conclude this with certainty. God never gives up on these people. He walks with them and leads them. As this book comes to a close, he'll bring in kings to help reinstate and keep the people. Uh, I know that's probably a lot of Sunday school material to work through to sort of get this background of Judges, but I do want to turn the corner just a little bit and try to bring it home for what I think Judges is going to be for us, what we can get out of a book like this. Most of us, as we think about salvation, sort of in the back of our minds, have this sort of promised land mentality. We have a lot of expectations of what this Christian life is going to be. Things will get better. Things will be easier. Things will pay off. We have a lot of expectation. We should be honest and humble enough to recognize, even in the midst for most of us, of living in this salvation, this promised land, this life and the life around us is still pretty messy and pretty complicated most of the time. It's exactly where Judges lands us promised land, salvation, the land that had been anticipated all the way back to Abraham has finally been given to us, and yet here we are in the midst of it in chaos and confusion, trying to figure out how to live in this promised land with all of the complexity of complicated, painful, full of temptation world around us. The subtleties of living out in the midst of this, with all of its interest and its enticement of culture, full of technology and power and progress and sex, We can't help but sort of feel like this doesn't actually sound like that ancient of a world at all. sort of sounds a whole lot like the world that all of us have grown up in. It isn't long reading the book of Judges until we start to find that all of the same things they wrestle to overcome are things that in all reality we wrestle to overcome. Our own lives, our own cultures are so full of enticements that like these chariots, we just can't quite seem to find a way to overcome on our own. And so all of the progress... All of this faith of living in this promised land gets halted, stopped. If we were honest, it happens a lot in our own lives. Expectations, hopes of salvation, pulled away, enticed by culture, stunted and halted, trying to live out of all of the complexity and painfulness of this world. The leaders that God puts in front of Israel over and over in this book that we'll spend time with, the judges, When we read about them, they aren't always the model of what we would want to follow in the midst of all of this complexity. We like leaders who step forward with clarity, who make sense out of it, who simplify it, who give us path to follow. The judges in this book do not do that well. They complicate things further, they turn chaos into even greater chaos. 
But the one thing that they do manage to do, even when we struggle to understand how, is they always seem to pull people's attention back to God. Sometimes in positive ways, by positive examples. Sometimes by their own failures and their lives miserably falling apart. But somehow God uses these imperfect people in profound ways to draw his people back into attention on him. That's not a small point in this book, but rather a deep way of thinking about how God is at work in the midst of all of the complexity of the world. A lot of people, if you've ever heard series on Judges before, the few I have, sort of use it as a way of talking about leadership. This is what leaders are supposed to look like in in God's world. I think that's probably partially true, but I think God's doing something more interesting than just giving us examples of what true leadership should look like. Judges helps us come to the realization that God is at work in the midst of a mess. This life, with all of its problematic living, honestly in ways that most of us haven't paid attention to or haven't realized before. God's at work in the good, the good leaders, the good situations, the good sermons. He's also at work in the bad ones, (laughs) the bad leaders, the bad Sundays, the bad relationships, the frustrating jobs, the difficult people, the difficult circumstances. In all of these obscurities of strange names and insignificant places, frustrating relationships, their God is in the midst of all of them, working out this salvation, keeping his people, inspiring us to focus on him again. Uh, There's a great book Eugene Peterson has where he spends basically a chapter introducing each of the books of the Bible. It's a really good book to sort of have beside your Bible as you start reading a new one to sort of catch a glimpse. And he says this in his introduction to the book of Judges. He says, sex and violence, rape and massacre, brutality and deceit do not seem to be congenial materials for use in developing a story of salvation. Given the Bible's subject matter, God and salvation, living well and loving deeply, We quite naturally expect to find in its pages leaders for us who are good, noble, honorable men and women showing us the way. So it's always somewhat of a shock to enter the pages of the book of Judges and find ourselves immersed in nearly unrelieved mayhem. Then he concludes with this. God, it turns out, does not require good people in order to do good work. It's a pretty important point of the book of Judges. God uses some pretty ungood people to do good things in the midst of the book. Uh, To be honest, I I honestly considered, as we were sort of coming out to the end of Mark and thinking about what came next, of not jumping back into the Old Testament too quickly. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time ahead of this sermon series trying to get my head around the book of Judges. I have a stack of commentaries and books that I ordered. I've been working through them for several weeks now. And to be totally honest with you, I was not super excited or motivated to jump into this book. It is probably the, I think it's harder than Leviticus, which I spent quite a bit of time studying too. This is not easy thinking. It's not an easy story to understand the point of. But I realized in a long process that though this road is not easy, the read is not easy, I think it should probably be required that every Christian who ever reads the book of Judges immediately turns the page and reads the book of Judges. These two books, Joshua and Judges, are meant to be read side by side. All of us like the stories of Joshua because they're clean, they're simple, they're empowering. We like to read stories with a good guy and a bad guy. We like stories that end with the good guy winning. That's the point of the story. We like the comfort of uplifting, encouraging endings with things we can take away and expect the same results in our life. We wouldn't expect a Christian book to go like the book of Judges. It really isn't a good ending to most of these stories. At the end, they're not particularly uplifting or inspiring about living. 
They become almost the strange middle sequel, like so many sequels do to the opening. Darker, more complex, more difficulties, but a critical part of the story. As Christians, I think one of the things we can often fault ourselves with is we tend towards being particularly sentimental. I don't know if you know that word, sentimentality, right? Uh, If you look it up, one definition gives this word for it, uncomplicated emotions. Uh, I think that's probably true of a lot of Christianity. We feel things, we experience things, but we like them as uncomplicated, as simple as possible. Clear-cut, simple nostalgia about how this faith, this promised land is supposed to work. Uh, There's an Irish author, Oscar Wilde, who says this. He says, "The the sentimentalist is one who desires to have the luxury of an emotion without paying for it. We want the experience, but we don't want to have to walk the road that leads to the experience of it. Or James uh, Joyce's Ulysses, which no one has read because it's 700 pages and boring. But in the book, he says this at one point. I didn't read all 700 pages to get this. He says, the sentimentalist is he who would enjoy without incurring the immense debtorship of a thing being done. We want to experience the promised land. We want all the goodness out of it, the emotion, the experience. Most of us as Christians aren't very good at being honest about the road we take to get there, the difficulties and the complexity of what surrounds us. I think there's a lot of that going on in Christianity. Cliché, oversimplification, epic ideas that we hold our lives to, but none of us are all too willing to pay for or to wrestle through. If you think about it, you know probably in all of your experiences of faith that this proves itself to be true more often than not. You see it everywhere in politics, right? So right now, if anyone quotes a few scripture verses, all of a sudden they're an evangelical uh, uh, politician running for office, right? All they need to do is memorize a few of them. You see how overly simplified being an evangelical politician is. You see it in the way we share with one another. Most of us as Christians, especially in church settings, can pretty easily talk about love and forgiveness and grace. We've got plenty of cliches and catchphrases to help us have the conversation. Yet how rarely do we as Christians honestly open up about how unnatural and hard those things are actually to live out in this world and this life? You see it in new believers who instantly think that becoming a Christian means the pressure to have their entire act together over the next two weeks in this simple discipleship process with its four classes, its 12 steps that lead you to now living the Christian life. You also don't have to look too widely or read too widely to pick up all of the cliché in Christian literature, Christian books, Christian music, Christian movies. We as Christians like things simple. Judges is something altogether different from the sentimentality and simple emotionalism most of us want out of faith. There's not a single sentimental word in the entire book of Judges. There's no empty emotions or rather there's complexity and hardship and frustration and pain, and in the midst of it all, a God who is working to keep his people. Nothing that we want out of Judges is there, but by reading it, we discover something that we weren't looking for that ends up being more profound than what we had asked in the beginning. If Joshua before took us to heights of adventure and epic scenes of God conquering on our behalf, then Judges forces us to deal with all the clutter tucked away in the back closets of our houses that we really wish we didn't have to dig into this weekend, but nonetheless, Judges pulls out and forces us to relive. It isn't clean, it isn't a simple book, it isn't a particularly fun book, but it is this. Judges is difficult, but it's refreshing in the fact that it is honest about being human, 
It is honest about following God. It's honest about our desperate need for a better way to do it that isn't so simple, so clean cut. The book of Judges is real. If I had to pick one word to describe it, it would be that. It's the most real book we've encountered in the Old Testament. And it looks a lot more like what, in all honesty, most of us experience going on around us most of the time. It's more honest than our cliches, more honest than our expectations, more honest than probably we're willing to be honest with ourselves. It's honest about us. It's honest about our sin. It's honest about the chaos that the majority of the time we create and spin out of control. But it's also honest about God. It's honest about what God is doing. It's honest about our desperate need for him if this thing is going to improve. The end point, the final thing we're working to in the book of Judges is this. Every part of it leads to this question. What Israel desperately needs is a perfect judge. It needs a judge who won't just redeem them and save them for the moment, but a judge who will deliver them and bring in a new life for all eternity. The end of Judges ends with this. Nothing is going to get better on our own. No leader is going to be raised up who's going to solve this problem or lead us out of it. No person, no idea, no thing. It begs the question, we need a judge, an ultimate judge. So here's our prayer. We're going to close, and uh, this is how we're going to end it by today. I know that's a big introduction that leaves a lot of questions unanswered. Welcome to the book of Judges. But it does say this. As we go forward in this book, which will be hard at times, our prayer is this. God, if you're willing to be this brutally honest with us about who we are and how we live, help us to be honest with you. It's a good prayer to begin the book of Judges. When I read this, even when it's difficult, let me be honest about myself in this book. Let me be honest about the world I'm living in. Let me be honest about my own struggles with faith and difficulties. And if you'll be honest with me, God, we're going to do everything we can to be honest with you and discover you in the midst of all of the complexity. Can that be our prayer as we close in the more worship? Heavenly